Hola, when in Spain listeners, a warm welcome to this week's episode. I'm your host, Paul Burge. Thank you for listening. Coming up in this episode, I'm going to be speaking to Susan Solomon. Now, Susan's just written a book called Lost and Found in Spain, Tales of an Ambassador's Wife. Susan's husband, Alan Solomon, was appointed U.S. ambassador to Spain under President Obama. And Susan, along with her ambassador husband, spent three and a half years living in Madrid between 2010 and 2013. I did not know it was going to be Antonio Banderas who would stand next to me and sing all the songs in my ear. The other person who's Spanish that I also got to meet and again say be still my heart is Rafa Nadal. He came to the embassy, he needed to get a visa. Kind, considerate, thoughtful, warm and really handsome. A beautiful man inside and out. During our interview, Susan talks about her new book, which is really a memoir about her time uh, living in Madrid at the U.S. Embassy. And she's going to give us a kind of insider point of view of diplomatic life, foreign service and sharing with us her take on life in Spain as an American. So that's coming up very shortly. Just before we get into the interview with Susan Solomon, I'd just like to give a quick thank you and a special mention to three new When in Spain patrons. So a shout out and muchas gracias to Kimberly Lemoy, Ingrid Magill and Jane O'Mara. Thank you, Kimberly, Ingrid and Jane for becoming When in Spain patrons. We're now at 25 patrons supporting When in Spain. So what is a patron? Well, it's somebody who makes a small regular donation to help support uh, the podcast, the work that I do, and really to help me cover my costs. I'm sure regular listeners are already familiar with this. But if you are a regular listener and you haven't signed up to become a patron yet, and you do enjoy listening to the podcast show, and you could spare one or two dollars each month to help support my work, please, please, please do if you can head across to patreon.com forward slash when in spain that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash when in spain i've got a whole when in spain uh, page set up there for people to make donations what is patreon.com well it's basically a crowdfunding website which allows anybody to show their support for content creators that they like so if you do enjoy when in spain please consider making a small donation to help secure the future of this podcast. So let's get into the interview with Susan Solomon. As I said, Susan Solomon's husband, Alan, was appointed U.S. ambassador under President Obama's administration. And they spent several years uh, living in Madrid, immersed in diplomatic life. So during the interview, Susan's going to share a bit about life at the U.S. embassy in Madrid and the nuts and bolts of its inner workings. And she's also going to talk about how she discovered a new identity in Spain and how she created a purposeful role for herself by setting up the Women's Leadership Network for Spanish businesswomen. Susan's also going to recount some high-profile people. She met uh, Rafa Nadal when he went to the embassy to get a visa. She also spent uh, Semana Santa 
with Antonio Banderas. And later on in the interview, Susan shares some of her favorite places in Spain, which includes uh, an amazing dining experience at the very famous restaurant El Bui. And at the end of the episode, I'll share some details with you about where you can pick up a copy of her book. So without further ado, here's Susan. Susan, welcome to the When in Spain podcast. Thank you for joining me. Well, thank you, Paul, for having me on. I'm uh, looking forward to our conversation. Congratulations on your new book, Lost and Found in Spain. Thank you, Paul. I had been working on the book without knowing it when I lived in Spain from 2010 through 2013 by writing a series of letters that I called olas. And little did I know that the 34 olas I wrote would end up being the basis for the book Lost and Found in Spain, Tales of an Ambassador's Wife. You are married to Alan Solomon, and, and your husband Alan was the U.S. ambassador to Spain under the Obama administration uh, from 2010 to 2013, is that right? That is correct. Uh, we arrived, uh, President Obama asked my husband to be his ambassador to Spain and Andorra in early 2009. And in January 2010, uh, on, on actually a snowy day in Madrid, how unusual that is. Wow, yeah, quite rare to have a snowy day in Madrid. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we worried for a moment that we brought it because we're from the Boston area where you do get a lot of snow. But thankfully, uh, the snow did not last long. But we ended up uh, representing President Obama and the people of the United States from 2010 through 2013. What a time it was. I, I can well imagine. Now, when your husband, Alan, was appointed, from what I gather from the book, it kind of came as something as a surprise. I got a little quote here that, that you didn't consider yourself a jet-setting diplomat, but an ordinary person thrust into some extraordinary circumstances. So just give us a bit of a feel of when you first found out that you would be moving to Spain and uh, your husband was going to be the U.S. ambassador to Spain and Andorra, how you felt at that stage and what were the first reactions and then really how did you feel when you first arrived in Madrid? First of all, I overheard my husband. I was in a different room and I heard him saying, yes, we'd love to. What an honor. Yes, We'd love to. Spain, how wonderful. And I'm like listening in, like trying not to eavesdrop on his phone call, but I heard that. And he came out and he said, we have been asked if, you know, you're never asked to be. You're asked to be considered because you have to go through a lengthy vetting process. I looked at him and I said, oh, my God, this is going to happen. Uh, up until that point, you know, we were, we're, I like to say we're ordinary people. We live very normal lives and you know, being an ambassador has all sorts of images in it, and part of the book tries to dispel that. It tries to really talk about how hard an ambassador works to forge relationships between the two countries. Uh, I had only been to Spain once before, and that was in 1975. Yeah, very, very different country, and Alan had been there in 1971, even earlier. And, and in those days, my memory of Madrid was drinking a lot of sangria and so <laughs> my memory is a little foggy <laughs> it doesn't um, it, we were very excited but Paul to be really honest as the year progressed and we were getting ready to leave I was a bit panicky when I was leaving home left our two daughters we left our my parents my father was dying at the time and I knew that 
Mm -hmm. I accept the community that we had been part of. And even though we were going to something very exciting, I kind of was rooted in a lot of fear and anxiety about it. And that's not my normal way of being. You asked me how I felt when we arrived. Yeah, your kind of initial reactions. Because, you know, culturally, even for me, I'm from the UK and uh, and I, I've, I've lived in the US as well, actually. But um, I think Spain, it's, uh, it's quite different to maybe what we're used to. You know, I mean, I've moved around in the United States a few times, but I had never moved to another country. And I remember my first morning, it was a Saturday morning that we arrived and, our, you know, the flight gets in very, very early and we were jet lagged and first we had a little bit of a press conference at uh, Barajas Airport. But I remember as we were driving through the streets of Madrid, and they were empty, 8 a.m. on a Saturday morning is not bustling, hustling Madrid, but I remember looking up at the buildings and the fountains and saying, I am going to be living in a magical place. And that was my first impression. Uh, this was European glamour. Uh, the buildings, the beauty of the architecture of Madrid is just stunning. I was excited, really excited, even though I had left everything behind. <laughs> I wanted to just to touch on that for a second because yeah, you had a, a very well established career working in uh, in nonprofits and fundraising. You were you know very grounded as you said and settled, and you you kind of had to just ditch all of that. And you know from reading your book, when you arrived in Spain, you found that there wasn't really a role for you as such. Certainly speaking in terms of being the wife of an ambassador and uh, having a, a role within the embassy, this was something that we, you found quite difficult at first. Um, I found it very difficult. I did. I, I have enjoyed a 30-plus year career in the fields of not-for-profit management, uh, helping philanthropists, foundations, corporations give money away, um, thinking about how they can make a difference in the world. And I love my work. It's very, very meaningful to me. But I was not able to bring it with me to Spain. Um, you know, we have strict ethics rules, and it was deemed it could be a conflict of interest. So I had to give that up. And I knew I wanted to play a meaningful role within the embassy community and within the Spanish community. I, I didn't want to just sit and smile and plan teas and nothing. <laughs> I ended up loving doing that, too. But I wanted to do something meaningful, and um, embassies are busy places, and people have a lot of work on their plate, and I had to figure out a way that I could be useful and help advance the embassy's mission. And um, luckily, I was able to do that by finding a way to work with women in business in Spain. There's so many powerful Spanish business women, leaders, president of Hewlett-Packard, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, all were women. And I was able to work with them and it helped the embassy because we were making connections in the business world and the cultural world and so forth. And very, very meaningful for me. And plus, I made great friendships. So you created the Women's Leadership Network. And, and like you said, it was a kind of designed to sort of shine a light on the, the role of women in Spain and, uh, and also Americans, I guess, as well, and sort of building relationships and, and networks. That's correct. Um, what I would do is I would take it by sort of an industry sector. So it could be women in journalism. And I would feature women who are journalists. Ana Romero was one of my guests. I did women in fashion, about the business of fashion. I, Tiziana Dominguez, who does Aldolfo Dominguez, 
the wonderful fashion store, she would be on, along with others who were leaders in the industry. We had women who were entrepreneurs, Maria Benhumea, who at that point had Spain's Startup Summit. Now it's this huge gathering for entrepreneurs. I would feature her. And in, we would have conversations just like we are. We're talking and getting to know each other. It was an opportunity to shine a light on what all of these illustrious women, and we sometimes had men on too, were doing as well. They were very popular. We had about 100 guests at each of them. They were held in the residence of the U.S. ambassador. Uh, we served food. We served wine. We served they were breakfasts often. Women in food. Oh, my gosh. We had uh, Sandra Go <laughs> from the fabulous Marques de Grignon, the olive oils that they had. I, I mean, I could keep naming people. Did you notice any kind of very obvious differences with the roles of women in uh, senior positions in business in Spain? compared with the USA. There's still quite a stark divide between men and women and holding senior positions within big companies in Spain, perhaps compared with the USA. Is that something that you noticed? Uh, I did notice it. And I don't think it's all that different, though. I think women in the United States face the same problems and issues that women in Spain do. We would talk a lot. Um, we, I used to bring a group of mid-level Spanish women in to meet with senior executives. It was part of, the, part of the women's network. And the issues were still the same. We were still juggling our kids. We were the ones worrying about who's going to pick them up from school. We were the ones worrying about our parents who were aging, you know, still have to take them, take care of them. And we weren't doing what, and I'm going to use sort of the proverbial thought of meeting on the golf course and just <laughs> sure. making connections. You know, I think women were working incredibly hard, doing incredibly wonderful jobs and thorough jobs and leading companies and being very successful, but still having to manage other aspects of which um, sadly exists. You know, I'd love to see one day, I think this next generation coming up after us have a better way of sharing equally the responsibilities. And while my husband was a good husband and good father, is a good husband and is a good father, the brunt of the responsibility still fell on me. And I think that that's the case for uh, women all over. Just going back to what I was saying earlier about initially when you arrived in Spain and you kind of struggled with finding really a role for yourself. What certainly came through in the book was this idea of finding a new identity for yourself, not just professionally, but personally as well. Were you quite surprised or were you quite disappointed? How did you feel when you arrived uh, to really discover that actually there wasn't really anything kind of concrete set up for you as a role with the embassy? You summarized it beautifully. I was, and hence the title of the book, Lost and Found in Spain. You're talking about losing and finding yourself in Spain, I gather. Exactly. And I was lost when I, I, I you know, I, in the United States, when you meet somebody, usually the first question is, so what do you do? In Spain, that's not the first question people ask, which I think is a beautiful part of Spain. I, I completely agree. That's so true. It's so true. So, But when I first got there, the do part of who I was or who I am was missing, and I didn't know how to go about it. I, You know, I remember going to meetings where people would explain to me, well, here's the, you know, here's the wine cellar, and here's the place cards we use on tables, and here's some <laughs> menus, and I actually got to love doing all of that. But my first thought was, I'm here to plan menus, you know, and arrange things. And, and again, the work of an embassy is hard work. 
So it's not just about entertaining. But I was really searching for something more meaningful. And um, I I didn't know how I was going to find it at first. And I I will say that uh, my husband, as the ambassador, was exceptionally helpful in, in also saying to people within the embassy staff, Try working with Susan. Of course, nobody would call me Susan. I was only Mrs. Solomon. It, it was hard at first. It was very, very hard. And you couple that with being in a new place and not, you know, think about all the things you know in your neighborhood. You know where you're going to get your hair cut. You know where you're going to, you know, walk your dog. You know, all that. I was learning a whole new world. It's, it's uh, challenging enough for anybody to relocate to a new country and a different culture when they already have a very defined job waiting for them. But I guess it must be quite difficult when you've got to deal with all of that. And then on top of this, you're trying to find a role for yourself professionally as well. It is really correct. And, you know, I mean, I I know some people would say, why are you complaining? You have this wonderful role. Seize it and take advantage of it. And I want people to know I felt that way. I felt honored to be doing you know, to be over and representing the United States and, you know, building bridges within Spain. So it's not that I did not take that into mind, but I really was seeking more. I wanted I wanted to make a difference there. And I wanted to, you know, get my hands around a project and work on it. And, you know, my husband has this huge agenda, his, you know, of everything he could do. And, you know, I was a little envious. I knew I wasn't the ambassador, but I was envious of having that kind of purpose. It's not very often that uh, I or any of the listeners have the opportunity to talk to somebody who's lived on the inside of that world of foreign service. Can you give us a a bit of a flavor of the nuts and bolts and the ambiente of being based in an embassy in the U.S. embassy in Madrid? What was that world like for you? It was very, very new to us. We are what they would call a non-career ambassador as opposed to somebody who's a career. They work their way up through the foreign service. The United States is not the only country that has non-career, but there aren't many. I really think it's great to have non-career ambassadors. They bring an enormous amount of skill and talent to the work that they do. But you come and you have something new there. So there were there are about 300 or so employees at the U.S. Embassy in Madrid. About one-third of the, those are American Foreign Service officers, and two-thirds are locally employed Spanish staff people who live in Spain. So one is you have to get to know 300 people. And we work really hard to get to know everyone. And I have to tell you, if any of those who worked at U.S. Embassy Madrid or are still there, hello to all of you. I love you. Um, you're all great. Uh, we also lived, we're very lucky because our home, our residence, was on the grounds, on the compound of the, of the embassy. So we were very, very connected to it. And also it was right in the heart mm-hmm. of Salomon. Yeah. The barrio, and who could think of a more beautiful place to live than along the Castellana? Well, so, absolutely, yeah. It was great, and we had a, you know, we were very well taken care of because everybody who works at the embassy knows the ambassador, and their family is very, very busy. So we did have staff. We did have a wonderful residence manager, Christina Alvarez. We had um, chefs to cook for both for our family as well as for the invited guests we would have, and we had a lot of guests. We felt very privileged to have that, and 
again, I came home and it's like it's really nice to go into my own kitchen and make scrambled eggs. Huevos revueltos were made for me by somebody. So there's a hierarchy, and the ambassador is the equivalent of a four-star general, um, you know, and everybody reports him. And he's president. He was Alan was President Obama's representative from one government to another government, and we were there for both uh, President Zapatero and for President Rajoy. So we, uh, you know, we're there for different election cycles. Uh, we would meet people down in the alcalde and the alcaldesas, the offices, the mayors, and we'd go up to all of the different comunidades. We got to know diplomatic life pretty well, even though it's very, very different than the life we lead um, when we're back stateside. There's a joke about um, ambassadors because they, you know, do get driven, and they are usually on the curbside in the back seat of a of a car. Uh, the joke is something like, and I'll use Alan as the example, he knew that times had changed when he got into the back seat of a car and it did not move. Now he's driving again and I actually did drive in Madrid um, and I did drive around Spain from time to time. Oh, wow, you're quite, you were, you were quite brave driving in Madrid. <laughs> really brave to drive in Madrid. That is not, that, I was nervous about that. I had anxiety over that. <laughs> I conquered. I'm, I'm not surprised. We were lucky to have that. I mean, and partially is that you don't have to think about all those mundane things that we do in our normal lives. You got the opportunity to to travel extensively around Spain. Were there any particular highlights for you? You weren't always bogged down in the capital for all of the time. When you are go to ambassador school, which all ambassadors go to in the United States, you are told you are not the ambassador to the capital city. You are the ambassador to the entire country. So we took travel in Spain very seriously, if you could think about going to 17 different regions and being serious. We, we had fun. We loved traveling in Spain. You name the place, you name the province, we have been there. Yeah. And um, I do have, I mean, I, it's hard. People say to me, should I help people plan trips now? I, they go, should I go to Madrid or Barcelona or should I go down to Sevilla and Granada or should I go up to Galicia? Uh-huh. And I go, my answer is yes. <laughs> all of them. So we were lucky. We did travel to each of the provinces. And we did spend time. There are certain places we've gone back to repeatedly. It's hard not to go back to Mallorca in the summer. Uh, we, we spent a lot of time in Andalusia. We were down in Sevilla and Cordoba and Granada. I think Alhambra, Alhambra is one of the most magnificent sites in the world. Absolutely spectacular, yeah. Uh, I took my daughter on a trip. My daughters are grown and they would come to visit. And I took them out to Extremadura where we went out, you know, to cities, towns like Cáceres and, you know, all of the walled cities that I fell in love with. I felt that that was going back to like a really authentic part of Spain. Extremadura seems to be the kind of almost the forgotten region of Spain, really. It's always uh, people view it as a little bit of a backwater, but it's got some real gems. Uh, yeah, it really does. And of course, I love Barcelona. And we went up the Costa Brava. We would eat dinner. We were fortunate enough to eat at El Bulli twice. Oh. You know, we went up to San Sebastián, to Santander. We went to Comillas. Uh, you know, so we really did a lot of travel. The Pico de Europas. I mean, it, it was an extraordinary place. It, you know, every every inch of Spain. Paul, I could spend hours talking to you about places that we've been in Spain. 
Spain is a kind of nation of nations and every region has a very distinct identity, whether you're talking in some cases language, certainly food, traditions, festivals, music. The list is kind of endless. It's That's one of the uh, fantastic things about Spain is just a huge variety. There is so much you can do in Spain and, um, you know, and, and it really is. The high-speed trains are phenomenal. Uh, you know, I'm in Boston, as I said, Boston to New York, which is about 200 or so miles. I, I can't do the kilometer translation that quickly. It takes <laughs> and a half hours by train. How many but hours? Three by train. Barcelona yeah. and Madrid, which is like a six, seven-hour car ride, takes yeah. and a half hours. So, you know, just the difference is remarkable that you could have that much time and, you know, you, you could get places so easily yeah. in Spain. Yeah. And everything is just an hour plane ride away. You know, yeah. it's, so how lucky. The public transport infrastructure in Spain is, uh, particularly the trains, is absolutely, uh, I think, probably one of the best, if not the best, in Europe. Um, the Ave get to any corner of Spain in just a matter of hours. Really comfortable and efficient service as well. I think the food on an Ave train is better than you get... <laughs> that's for sure <laughs> Absolutely right. it's very civilized yeah yeah going back to talking about food how was your experience of eating uh, dining at El Bouilly well Ferran Adria if you are listening and I hope you are we miss your restaurant we miss your creativity uh, we called it theater it was an evening of theater yeah because um, we were entertained by food we didn't just savor it and taste it um, I remember the first time we went, we sat out on his porch overlooking the beautiful Mediterranean, and we were given slow gin fizzes, that summer drink, where it's cool and refreshing, except his was hot and cold and refreshing. Oh. <laughs> it served something that looked like peanuts, and you put them, nomadic peanuts, I think he called them, and you put them in your mouth. And they just melted. You didn't have to move anything. Um, everything was, what you expected to be hard was soft. What you expected to be hot was cold. Everything was just great. And you can't, I, I just loved every moment of it. We were fortunate enough to go twice. So it comes highly recommended. Food with drama. Food with drama. Talking of other high-profile people that you encountered during your time, I was reading that you went to the Semana Santa, the Holy Week, down in Malaga in uh, Andalusia with Antonio Banderas. Is, is that right? Be still my heart. Neo Banderas is from Malaga. Uh, we had very good friends. Our friends Javier and Arancha took us as their guests to see the Semana Santa festivities. We watched the goats coming off the boat in the harbor. And then we went to the center of town where they had only said to me their friend Antonio would be joining us. Ah, so okay. <laughs> I did not know it was going to be Antonio Banderas who would stand next to me and sing all the songs in my ear. Amazing. He is just such a nice man. And he pointed to a, he's from Malaga, and there he was in the center. He was going to be helping carry the cross for Holy Week uh, later on during the procession. But he stood there and he pointed to a train trestle, a train track, oh, a few kilometers away. And he said when he was a little boy, he would sit on the train track 
and watch the festivities from far away. And now here he is back in the center of town helping to carry the cross. You know, how far he has traveled and how fortunate he feels. And, oh, he just, he, you know, I couldn't help it. He sang in my ear. I sat next to him at lunch and he explained to me everything we were having. And now my favorite dessert is torrijos. So I know that, and I always think of him when we ever have it, and uh -huh. um, that was quite a marvelous experience. It sounds absolutely yeah, surreal, having Ant Antonio Banderas serenading you in your ear uh, at the at Semana Santa. Incredible. I mean, I had heard, yes, that people say that he does still take part in the uh, carrying the uh, tronos in the processions in Malaga, yes. Yes, he, he was great. The other person who's Spanish that I also got to meet and, again, say be still my heart is Rafa Nadal. Rafa Nadal. Rafa Nadal. And we root for Rafa in every tennis match we see. He came to the embassy. He needed to get a visa. And he came and um, we hosted him and his entourage, his uncle and his trainers and his friends who travel with him, his close circle of people. And we asked if he would be willing to say hello to uh, the Spanish staff that worked at the embassy. And we brought, we bought a lot of tennis balls with the Roland Garros, the French Open uh -huh. name on them. And Rafa sat there and signed tennis balls for people and spoke to, and it was mainly the Spanish staff there for, I don't know, an hour or so. Kind, considerate, thoughtful, warm. And really handsome. Just, <laughs> I'm sorry to say, just a, a beautiful man inside and out. And, you know, that was also something that I really loved. Um, you know, experiences that I never thought I would have in my life. Yeah, very, very special. And it must have been incredible for those Spanish embassy staff to have the opportunity to to meet him and to, to have, have him sign a, a tennis ball for them. Are there any other anecdotes or amusing or unusual stories that stick in your mind from those days? I can give two instances. One is we were honored to be asked to attend the Prince of Asturias Awards up in Oviedo. And we went many years. We went three different years. Uh, we went whenever somebody American in the U.S. was honored. Uh, we also were there the year Leonard Cohn was honored with the Prince of Astorius Award. And his speech to me still stays with me as one of the most poignant speeches ever. Because he, the, the, fam he's the famous singer, poet, sadly passed away a couple years ago, and is sorely missed. He um, thanked Spain, but he thanked it from the land up, from the soil, because it was from the Spanish soil that grew Spanish trees that allowed his Spanish-made guitar. And it was a Spanish friend who helped him learn the first few chords he ever learned. So he gave, I, I'm not doing justice. I recommend everybody Google Leonard Cohn's acceptance of the Prince of Astorius award speech. It was just beautiful. And he's very kind and gentle. And that was really an honor. And, and to see what happens with this award festival, to see how the town comes up and it's the Gallego, the, the people come out in traditional costumes with the Gallego instruments marching through the streets. It's a jubilant festival. 
going back to adjusting to the day-to-day life in Spain, the small things that we find slightly different to what we're used to. I think you said something like Madrid is not a morning town. Did you find it difficult to adjust to the kind of Spanish rhythm of life? People still say to me, how do you eat dinner at 10 o'clock at night? And I would say, think of it this way, from about 6 o'clock when you leave work, so it's at 1800, to when you eat dinner at 2200, you have four extra hours in your day that you did not have before. I got to really enjoy that and savor that time and People would go, oh, you must have taken a siesta. And I'd say, siesta is not really what Spain's about anymore. It's a really dynamic, active country. You know, it's an old, you know, not that I don't like a good nap every now and then. But (laughs) at that time of day was extra time. And that was a gift. So we got used to that. Um, Our life and our schedules did have us getting up early in the morning. But in the United States, it's not uncommon to have a breakfast meeting at 7.30 in the morning. In Spain, that would be at 8.30 in the morning, and that would be considered early. So we got used to it. It took a little bit of time, and we often, in our early years, were the first people at restaurants. We would be there at 2100, <laughs> and we'd be the only ones there. Of course. <laughs> but then, then we became more Spanish in our ways and, and, and learned that you can go out a little later and it still works. <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the big things, isn't it, for 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 people from other countries when they come to live in Spain. Certainly for me too, I completely agree with you. The I think, you know, the UK kind of meal times and daily work uh, schedule is almost identical to, to the US. But uh, yeah, meal times, everything's kind of pushed forward by a couple of hours, I guess, isn't it? People start work maybe a little bit later. They work later. They have their lunch a couple of hours later. They certainly have their evening meal quite a lot later. And it's certainly something that I've, uh, I'm still grappling with even now actually really the one thing i could not do i can't i still can't do long lunches i don't know my temperament never adjusted to two-hour lunch i you know i sort of get itchy i'm sort of ready to go again at night i can sit back and relax but so the long lunches were often hard and big lunches too even though it's a much healthier way to eat i'm still not used to having a big three-course meal at lunchtime I think we can all learn a lot from the Spanish because I think it is a healthier way to be. Did you find that food was a good way of kind of connecting to to the culture in Spain? Food is an international language. Uh, you know, if if I'm with someone who doesn't like to eat, we, we sort of have a little bit of a disconnect there. You know, and think about it. I think, I think Madrid, I think maybe even Spain, has more restaurants per capita than any other place. There's a restaurant everywhere. There's a tapas bar everywhere. There's a cafe. And it's so social. It's so meaningful in the food. You know, it doesn't matter if you're at El Bulli or another Michelin-starred restaurant or the little bar down the street. You'll, you'll still get great, great food. Fresh fish. Oh, you're making me hungry. Abundance of seafood, yeah. I think there's a real emphasis on Spain in really savoring and enjoying the whole experience of of eating and food and drinking and a very sociable experience as well which is something very different to I think now nowadays in the UK where sadly the kind of mentality is food is just something to get done and out of the way just to satiate yourself and then get on with your routine. We need to learn how to savor it. Um, Probably the UK is the same as the US in that they say that people in our countries we live to work 
whereas in Spain people work to live. Living is what becomes important. Take time to savor it. Spain you savor. Talking of savoring Spain, can you tell us a, a favorite place of yours in Madrid? As I said, I loved walking around Madrid. I loved it. I loved walking up the Castellana and seeing the palacitas, the small little homes that, you know, were baby palaces at some point. Um, I loved being in Retiro Park. I loved going past the glass palace, the Piedro uh, Palacio, and or Cristal, sorry. That's right, the Palacio de Cristal, yes, yeah, beautiful. Cristal, yeah, and when it would have ex- art exhibits in and you'd walk in, and, I mean, just to be in this gorgeous glass house. Um, I also loved going to Bernabeu, to the stadium. I, I, you know, while we were supposed to be impartial, and we did go to both Atletico and Real Madrid games, <laughs> they were pretty damn cool, pardon me. I loved going, and, and, and both of those stadiums are quite different than than the other, but Bernabeu, I would take people, when, when friends would come to visit, I would often say, let's take a tour of it. And they'd go, really? And i go, yeah, really. <laughs> it's, it's worth seeing. I, um, I shouldn't confess this, but I will. <laughs> I did love shopping. Little stores, things, you know, beautiful clothing and items and the way women and men were put together. You know, nobody was wearing athletic clothes at the, in those years in Madrid. Men were wearing beautiful cashmere blazers with pressed pants and women were in dresses with high heels. The high heels I had a hard time with and I can't walk in them that well. Exactly. But, I was going to say you can't walk you can't walk distances in Madrid <laughs> in high heels. You know, shopping was just great and I still do I like to say I helped improve the economy. Dare I pin you down to uh, a favorite city in Spain or even region? Um, well, you could, but it's going to be hard for me to do that because I really find something beautiful about so many places. I loved going out to Extremadura. I loved it. I felt that the wildness of it and yeah. sort of the Roman ruins gave a bit of history and was sort of what Spain must have been like a hundred years ago. And I, I actually thought maybe at one point I had been there in a prior life, if that's possible. There was something about it that I loved. Uh, I mentioned Mallorca. I do love that. It's, and I love being on the beach there, and I love being in the hills there. And I do love the Alhambra. Uh, you know, that also is so evocative. You can't go wrong. You, I, you can't go wrong in Madrid or Barcelona or going into Cordoba and going to see the Mesquita. Yes. I, amazing. Amazing. I, I was helping a friend plan a trip, and... I said, you're only doing 14 days, you need another week. <laughs> you might uh, allot yourself two weeks for a holiday to see some parts of Spain, but you've got to take into account that things move a bit more slowly and everything's a bit more leisurely and you need to factor that in, a bit of extra time just to sit and ponder and digest. Reflecting on your time in Madrid and Spain, uh, what, what are your takeaways? Is there anything that your time in Spain kind of taught you uh, or that kind of changed you in some way? Well, the book, again, it's lost and found. I was found. I found all these new things. I found love for the country. found a love for people. I found a real uh, love for the way people live life there. Their their relationships with friends, with family. So I've come home really appreciating all of that. Not that I didn't before, but I have even greater appreciation for stopping to really take the time with people 
And so that's one takeaway. Uh, the other that I learned is that when you are in a role like we were, with my husband as the ambassador, you have a platform, meaning that you have an ability to do good. We started a volunteer program in Spain, something, you know, where people would roll up their sleeves and go paint a, a senior citizen's home or help clean up a park. Uh, you know, we had the platform to do that, and I don't take that for granted for one moment. And I came home realizing that we all have voices that we can use to help make change in the world and help make the change we want to see. It did change me in that way, and it also changed me in that when I came home, I did not go back to work in a full-time capacity. And I wanted to fill my life with other things besides work. And I'm fortunate that I can do that, but I really don't want to be defined by what I do. Mm -hmm. I, I now ask people, I don't say, what, you know, so what do you do? I, I don't say that to people. I say, how do you spend your time? Because I think that that shows more of who we are as a human be being. And it takes a while to get used to it, and people automatically want to say, well, I do this. No, 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 no. What do you like to do? Yeah. You know, things that drive you, give you passion. So that's another takeaway from my time. Is there anything now, and I'm sure there must be, that you really miss about Spain now that you've, you, you've been back in the U.S. for uh, several years? But is there, are there still little things that you miss? Are there little habits that you've kind of adopted since spending time in Spain? There's a lot of things I miss, and I'm in, it's mainly people, because people make a place special. So there are a lot of my friends that I really miss being able to see. I now heat my milk in the morning to have with my coffee because that's a very European and Spanish thing. <laughs> Absolutely. We do drink a lot of Spanish wine. Um, but So those are things that we've taken. And, and we really like to let people know uh, about Spanish things. Uh, you know, more people in the United States speak Spanish than people in Spain speak Spanish. That's because we have a bigger Spanish-speaking population here. We feel like there's ways that Spain can promote itself more within the United States. Uh, it's a great tourist destination. Students go there to study. And yet, um, you know, when you say to people here, where are you going on vacation? Spain might not be their first choice. So we, wanna, we really want to make sure that people put Spain front and center. Because for us, it was such a thrilling, wonderful, meaningful part of our lives. Keep putting Spain on the on the map. Absolutely. I read an interesting statistic the uh, couple of weeks ago. It was in El País newspaper, I think, that the highest number of American residents in Spain are actually concentrated in Madrid, which I don't know if I was surprised to learn or not. I was thinking it could maybe be Barcelona, but apparently not. Uh, the majority of Americans who are resident in Spain are in Madrid. And it's interesting you're saying putting Spain on the map Again, because I think uh, if we're talking about Madrid, a lot of people kind of overlook Madrid. I think certainly I don't know if it's the same in the, in the States, but from the UK, people sort of instant the sort of place they automatically think of when they think of Spain uh, for a city break would be Barcelona. And Madrid, I think, is still compared to Barcelona, which is completely overrun by tourism now. Um, Madrid is still hasn't hasn't reached that level. There's such different cities as well. I think of Madrid as such a classic Spanish city. Everything about it, its architecture, the way people are, it's, it feels much more traditional, even though it's contemporary. And Barcelona is much more European 
you know, perhaps it's the cruise ships that come in, perhaps it's, you know, further north, closer to France. And I love Barcelona as a city. I love seeing the Mediterranean. I love seeing the mountains. I love walking the streets of Barcelona. But they're such different. They're so totally different. I guess yeah. it's like Boston versus L.A. Yeah, you you can't really compare them. I don't think. I think each one has their. They've just got their own unique identity and charm, really. Yeah, they do. They do, and you know, and and as does the north and the south, and the east and the west have their own personalities. They are not. It's not a homogenous country, and by any means, I feel very blessed in life that Alan and I got to live there, got to experience life as we did. I'm grateful that I got to write this book. I never thought I'd be an author and talking about it on shows like yours. We'll meet the next time. La próxima vez. <laughs> La próxima vez. Exactly. Whenever you're back in Madrid, uh, let's meet up. I look forward to it. Susan, thank you so much for your time today, and thanks for joining the When in Spain podcast. Thanks so much, Paul. So that's Susan Solomon talking about her new book, Lost and Found in Spain, Tales of an Ambassador's Wife. I really enjoyed reading it. Great insight into, well, uh, a kind of lifestyle in Spain that really none of us uh, will ever experience, I guess. Uh, But really interesting observations and some really uh, uh, entertaining anecdotes about her time here in Spain. If you'd like to get your hands on a copy of Susan's book, if you're in the USA, you should be able to find a copy in most good bookstores. If you're listening from outside of the USA, Lost and Found in Spain is, of course, available on Amazon. And it's available on Amazon as a physical hard copy. And it's also available to download as a Kindle version. And the book is published by Disruption Books. So there we go. I'll wrap up this episode now. Just before I go, a quick reminder, as always, especially if you're new to the When in Spain podcast. uh, When in Spain does have a presence on all of the usual social media hangouts. In particular, we have a very uh, active and friendly Facebook group, which you can find by searching When in Spain on Facebook. That will take you to the When in Spain Facebook page. And via the When in Spain Facebook page, you'll see a big blue button uh, where you can join the group and uh, connect with other When in Spain fans. Completely free to do so. And it's your place to share content, ask questions, share ideas, post photographs, anything like that, anything that's relevant to Spain. When in Spain also has an Instagram page if you'd like to see my personal photography from around Spain. Uh, when in Spain is also on Twitter if you'd like to tweet me and if you'd like to get in touch directly with me for any reason whether you have some feedback about the podcast or you want to ask me any specific questions directly you can do so by emailing when in Spain one at outlook.com that's when in Spain number one at outlook.com. Thanks, as always, for listening wherever you are in the world. I really appreciate your support and I really hope you find When in Spain podcast useful and entertaining. And if you do really enjoy When in Spain, please don't forget, if you can and you think it's worth it, make a small donation via patreon.com forward slash when in Spain. Just one or two dollars a month. 
it all adds up makes a big difference uh, to me helping cover the cost of uh, publishing the show and syndicating it and also uh, helps pay for a little bit of the time that I spend putting the show together much appreciated and a big thank you to uh, those 25 patrons who are already supporting when in Spain so I'll leave it there have a fantastic week wherever you're listening from in the world and I look forward to speaking to you again next time until then hasta luego Thank you.